0: Acts chapter eighteen. Who would have believed that a balmy Friday evening in Paris could end with such terror? I'm sure you're all aware of the news now of the terrorist strikes in Paris on Friday. Uh, I came home around noon to grab a bite to eat. Left Reggie out. And the news began to pour in about what was taking place in real time. In the uh, cafes there and in that concert hall, 182 people confirmed dead, 352 people seriously wounded, many probably will not survive. Eight terrorists, all armed with AK-47s, all wearing suicide belts, in a coordinated attack, hit... Six different locations in Paris. This is an enemy who knows who their enemy is, who has declared war on the United States and on on Europe and the West. While we keep playing around with the whole concept of thinking we contain ISIS, they're claiming lives. Makes me sick. And I walked around on Friday just thinking about the fact that I live in a world of terror. I didn't grow up in one. Now, there were always hot spots in the world, always problems. But for it to be such an unsettling and constant thing right now in the world, I told Cheryl, this is not the world I want to live in. Thank God for a better country. But I don't want to stick my head in the sand. You know, Jesus told us this would come. And He didn't tell us vaguely. He didn't tell us generically. You know, it's not like the prophecies of Nostradamus that you could apply or not apply. No, Jesus told us very specifically that life on planet Earth in the last days would be exactly what we're seeing. And in fact, He used the word... Luke 21, verse 10, he said, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes, and in various places, plagues and famines, and there will be terrors. There will be terrors, he says. The word is phobetron. Where we get our word phobia from phobos or phobeo in, in the Greek Phobitron, which literally means that which strikes fear. Jesus said in the last days there will be that which strikes fear in the heart of man. Terrorism. So we ought not be surprised, though we may be upset. It is a bitter, heartless, twisted evil that opposes God and strives for world dominance. And that twisted evil has a name. Revelation 12, verse 9 calls him the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. See how upside down it is, is that Iran and ISIS and those who hate the West would say that Israel is the little Satan and America is the great Satan. But the reality is there is one Satan, who drives the evil in this world, who drives the wickedness, who promotes the terror. Now I obviously could not have planned it this way, but Jesus has a word in Acts 18 to speak, I believe, directly to us this morning to encourage the body, but also to lift our eyes from the fear that would be imposed in this world. Acts chapter 18, look at verse 9. We're going to cover the whole chapter this morning, but let me just, for our focus, read a couple of verses here in the middle, and then we'll pray. Acts 18, verse 9, and the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city and he, that is Paul, settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them, Do not be afraid. There will be terrors. The body of Christ, do not be afraid. And Father, we take you at your word this morning. Lord Jesus, we are comforted, strengthened, and encouraged By Your Word. You said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in Me. And so we come this morning seeking to increase our faith. Open all of our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to hear what Your Spirit has to say to this fellowship. In Jesus' name. Amen. Where is the church? In a world that is seemingly filled with violence, And opposition and terror. Where is the church in all this? Let me answer that very simply. Still here. And still growing. Still by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Still restraining the full-blown tide of evil. And while the media may not promote the reality of it. Still the fastest growing faith in the world. Still the strongest faith in the world. Philippians 3.14, Paul says, still pressing onward toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's what we're doing. This is a body that can't be killed. This is a, a people who will never die on the eternal scale. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, there is one body... And one spirit. Just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. Not many hopes. Not many different ways. Not many paths. Just one. One Lord. One faith. One baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And then Paul further down in Ephesians 4 verse 11 says, He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists, some as pastors and some as teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12.27 You are Christ's body. And individually, members of it. I want to talk about bodybuilding this morning. Bodybuilding. Acts chapter 18 is a bodybuilding chapter from beginning to end, in which we get to meet several significant saints. A bunch of dynamic disciples begin to show up, begin to be named here in Acts chapter 18. I think it's on purpose. For as Paul himself is dismayed, the Lord begins to surround him with others. The presence of many. And it's strengthening and it's encouraging And as we began, this chapter hinges on the encouraging words that Jesus speaks to Paul right in the middle of the chapter. Jesus speaks to Paul? Well, yeah, you wouldn't expect the body to grow without the head, would you? And he inserts himself right here. Now, if you have a red-letter edition Bible, and you look at verses 9 and 10, and they're not in red letters, I would encourage you to get yourself a red pen... And underline it in red, because this is the Lord Jesus speaking to Paul. Let's walk this out together. I'll give you five things to note through Acts chapter 18 this morning. And this morning will be more like a Wednesday night, in that we're just going to go through the whole entire chapter. But the meat is so rich here, so tasty, so strengthening, that I believe it will build this body this morning. So here's the first thing to jot down, if you're a note taker, the preparation of the body. We begin with the preparation of the body. Verse 1. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. After these things. After what things? After Paul had just given, and we went over this on Wednesday night. So I would encourage you to go back and listen to the teaching if you were not able to be here. But after Paul delivered what some considered to be his most philosophically eloquent, culturally relevant teaching, they're on Mars Hill in Athens. Still studied today in seminaries around the world as the consummate sermon. And yet the outcome was lean. It was what I believe to be an early attempt to be seeker sensitive. For Paul, in this eloquent delivery, does not once even mention the name of Jesus. And in that point, I believe he errs. (gasps) Rick, you said the Apostle Paul erred? He's a human. Trust me, if I'm capable of erring, Paul was capable of erring. We all are. And in this sermon, it's a good sermon. It's not unbiblical, it's not heretical, it just doesn't get to Jesus. Not all the way. And he's trying so hard, he's quoting their philosophers, and he's drawing off of Greek thought, and he's coming to them as an eloquent speaker. But the journey from Athens now to Corinth is an important one for Paul, who in his own words said this, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. He says, When I came to you, brethren, And he went directly to Corinth from Athens. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. When did Paul determine that? I believe on the road from Athens to Corinth. When he realized that for all of his eloquence, the result was lean. He says, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3, I was with you in weakness, and in fear, and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Let me tell you something I have learned teaching through the Bible. It is easy as a Bible teacher to get rattled. Maybe you don't know that. Usually, the most rattling experience is when you preach a sermon or do a teaching and people are amazed or impressed. It's also easy to get rattled when you don't think you've done anything. And so, human emotion can get in the way. I thank God that 12 years ago he said, Rick, just teach the word. But here comes Paul, having preached what was a great sermon. And he stumbles now into Corinth and he is fearful and he is trembling and he is confused and he says, you know what? That didn't work. Cultural relativity does not work. Christ and Him crucified, that's my message and that's all I'm going to talk about. Amen. And God spun him around to the right position. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Amen. And so here is Paul in Corinth, having come there from Athens, and he realizes that the key to the preaching and the power is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now hold on to that. All of your lives, hold on to that. Our message is not one of how to live in this world. We've been over this. Our message is not how to have a happy life. Our message is not five tips to a better marriage. Our message is Christ and Him crucified. The only hope of the world. It is a message ISIS does not understand. What is the message of ISIS? Kill and conquer. Which, by the way, is the message of Muhammad. Which, at its core, is the message of Islam, which is no religion of peace. Christ and Him crucified. A life of sacrifice on behalf of humanity. And it wasn't until here, this is interesting to me, it wasn't until here at Corinth that the Holy Spirit now will begin to inspire Paul to write letters. Did you know that? He never wrote a letter before he came to Corinth. Now at Corinth he starts writing the letters that would make up 14 of the 27 books of the New Testament. And it is not until Paul fully gets it, Christ and him crucified, that the Lord allows him then to begin to start writing. And now if you go through Galatians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Ephesians, Romans, what do you get from Paul? You get the message of Christ. Thank God that Paul wasn't writing letters in Athens. So stay sharp on Jesus Christ and Him crucified for the vast amounts of often competing and confusing input of this age can cause us to lose our spiritual potency, our effectiveness. We lose that when we take our eyes off of Jesus. Now in these first few verses of Acts 18, I think Paul is working this out. Working out his own body. Literally, he's back to tent making. So he's back to work, verse 2. He found a Jew named Aquila a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. Verse 4, and he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. He's still preaching, but not with the passion he had before. Paul has backed off a bit. He's going into the, Sabbath, into the synagogue on Sabbath, so once a week. But during the week, he's, he's tent-making. Now, no doubt, Paul needed to raise some funds. Had to eat, right? Had to survive. And it was traditional among the rabbis to have a trade. In fact, all rabbis were considered necessary. They had to have a trade. Jesus didn't. <laughs> But Paul had a trade. He was a tent maker by trade. And so he's back to work now. But he's pulled back a little bit. He's a little less brave as compared to Athens anyway. But the upside is that while Paul is a tent maker, he's also a personal trainer. He's working as a discipler. Paul, the discipler. We talk a lot about Paul the missionary, Paul the evangelist, Paul who takes the word of Christ, Paul who goes with the gospel, but think about Paul the discipler. He had previously taken on Silas, and then young Timothy, and the good doctor Luke. Luke stayed back at Philippi, Silas and Timothy stayed back at Berea, Paul went on to Athens by himself, now he comes into Corinth and he's by himself at least at the beginning Silas and Timothy are going to join him briefly. But at Corinth, Paul begins to disciple a Jewish couple named Aquila and Priscilla, or Prisca, as she's also called. Prisca is a kind of an affectionate nickname that this lady has. And Paul often refers to her in different places. Three different times he will refer to her as Prisca. Aquila and Prisca. He shares an affinity with these two. These these two Jews who were driven out of Rome by Claudius. Claudius was a raging anti-Semite. Cleared the city of all the Jewish people. Drove them out. So now these two have come down to Corinth. And they're making tents there. And Paul meets them probably in the synagogue on Shabbat and then the, the three go out and begin to work together because they're of the same trade, uh, skinopoyos, tent making, leather making in the Greek, skinopoyos. But while they sowed tents, Paul sowed seeds. And in the process, their hearts were knit together. Here at Corinth, in meeting Aquila and Prisca, Paul would meet two of his dearest friends, and they would remain two of his dearest friends throughout the rest of his life. In Romans 16, verse 13, he writes, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers, in Christ Jesus. By the way, that's unusual. It should be Aquila and Priscilla, but whenever you see Priscilla and Aquila, Priscilla's name first. Well, that's because nobody received women like Jesus did Nobody saw fit to draw women in equally like Jesus did. In Jesus, we are all one. And so rather than Aquila and Priscilla, which would be culturally appropriate, it's Priscilla first. Prisca and Aquila. Paul loves them. He calls them my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. He mentions them in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 19. He mentions them in 2 Timothy uh, 4, verse 19 as well. But understand this. The preparation of the body. The preparation of the body often begins right in the workplace. Making tents together. Get that. The preparation of the body begins in the workplace. Your primary mission field is where you are Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, or whatever your work hours may be. That is your mission field. Your occupation is for proclamation. You don't have a job to make dough. You have a job to make disciples. We need to shift that thinking. In America, we we have the phrase, the calling card. What's your calling card? And we've changed the whole message of calling into our business and we've categorized it as a separate issue in our lives. I have my business and then I have my family and then I have my church. It's secularization. The Bible knows of no such thing. That if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a follower of Jesus in your family. You're a follower of Jesus at work. You're a follower of Jesus at the church. You are a follower of Jesus wherever you go, making followers of Jesus. Well, I just never, you know, I was never called to the ministry. Oh, yes, you were. (laughs) If you're called to follow Jesus, you are called to the ministry of Jesus Christ. You are a disciple maker. You are a personal trainer. Just as Paul was with Priscilla and Aquila. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul wrote, Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Gang, that doesn't happen in one hour on a Sunday morning. The impartation of life happens on an ongoing, daily basis with those to whom you, you rub elbows. Who are you around? Who are you present with? That's your mission field. See it that way. I'm working really hard to save our staff right now. <laughs> See, that's a joke because they're all a Christian ministry <laughs> staff. They're already, you know. Okay. <laughs> Paul says, You recall, brethren, our labor and our hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So note this, Prisca and Aquila are being prepared to prepare. They're being discipled to disciple. Keep that thought in mind. Verse 5. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia... Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Suddenly, Paul now kicks it into high gear. We now, in verse 5, move from every Saturday teaching to constant teaching. This is all Paul is doing. He has hung up his tent. He is not sewing his tent anymore. He is now sowing the Word full time. And his words are now coming to the people of Corinth in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Paul is preaching Jesus full time, full tilt. Why now? Why the change? Two things to note. The second thing in your list of five here is the propping up of the body. Preparation of the body as he's working with Priscilla and Aquila. And now the propping up of the body because, hey, the boys are back in town. Silas and Timothy are here, my bros. He is flanked by his brothers and Paul's boldness is back. And he is, as the word tells us, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Silas and Timothy come into town and it, I believe, energizes Paul. It encourages Paul. In fact, you can compare it to Moses being encouraged, being propped up by Aaron and Her. Exodus chapter 17 tells a story about the Amalekite terrorists. How they were coming after Israel. And as Israel traveled, the Amalekites would come at the tail end of the people. They would come in the last tribe and they would attack and pick off the weak ones. And and try to take out the slow ones. And take out the innocent. Take out the citizens. And take out those who are unaware, as happened on Friday night in Paris. So that's what terrorists do. They try and picket those. You don't see them attacking military installations. They just wipe it out. You see them going into cafes. That's what terrorists do. That's what the Amalekites were. And in Exodus chapter 17, finally there's full-blown war. As they're in the valley of Rephidim, Israel turns and begins to fight against the Amalekites. But Moses isn't lead, leading the battle. No, Joshua is. So Joshua is down there. He's leading Israel. Moses is up on the hillside. And as Exodus 17 tells us, as long as Moses' hands are upraised, Israel is victorious. But when his arms get tired, when he gets weak, then Israel begins to fail. How like worship that is. When our arms are lifted up up in worship and praise to God, we are strong. But when we start to get weakened by the world, when the arms come down, that's when we start to fail. When we take our eyes off Jesus. So what happened? Aaron and and her go up and they stand on either side of Moses and they prop up his arms. So his arms can stay up. That's what we do. The propping up of the body. And so Silas and Timothy come into town and now they are propping up Paul. Note that Jesus never sent missionaries out one by one. He sent them out two by two. He always made sure that there was someone to prop up the other. The other. And Paul often now will refer to his fellow workers of the Gospel. In fact, in his letters 11 different times, he uses the phrase, my fellow workers. Again, Romans 16, 13, Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. That's an important word to note. Fellow workers, co-laborers, some translations might write. It's synergos. And synergos in the Greek literally means together in work. If you are synergos, you're together in work. And you could define discipleship, personal training, bodybuilding, you could define discipleship by nature as together in workness. Go ahead and jot that down. That's good. Together in workness. That's what discipleship is. We bear the load together. We walk together. We share Christ together. Bodybuilding in the church is a team sport. You are not called to go by yourself. To stand by yourself. Because what happens when you stand by yourself? Your arms get tired. You need his and her help. Or Aaron and her. whichever one. To hold up and to bear up, to be propped up. Well, Paul did. By the way, note this about Paul. I think this is a really valuable picture for us. Paul had his Silas and his Timothy. See, the strength is not developed just between the discipler and the disciple. The strength is developed as we have both our associates and our apprentices. Apprentices. Those who we walk with together and those who we are discipling, bringing along. Paul walked with Silas as his equal together, brothers in arms, and he brought along Timothy to raise up, who ultimately could then walk alongside Paul and Silas as he does. Associate and apprentice. A partner, you might say, and a protege, or if you're a Star Wars fan, a Padawan. Whatever works for you. (laughs) And the Bible talks about this. This principle of of propping up the body. That strengthens the body. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 9 says, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. Two. It goes on and says, If either one of them fails or falls, the other one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. One of the greatest mistakes a follower of Jesus can make is going in alone. If you go it alone, you will fall. You will be weak. You cannot prop yourself up. You need another. Ecclesiastes 4.12 says, If one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. And then it goes on and says, A cord of three is not quickly torn apart. And what we have is a cord of three. Silas, Timothy, and Paul. A cord of three. And so Paul is encouraged and he's propped up. And he's launching now into full-time preaching of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Now that's all he's spending his time doing. But there's another reason why Paul could do that when Silas and Timothy arrived. Number three in your notes. The provision of the body. The provision of the body. When Silas and Timothy caught up with Paul at Corinth, they brought with them a financial gift that allowed Paul to put away his tent. Allowed Paul to go full-time. Do you realize that your generosity allows me to do this full-time? I know that. I think about that all the time. How thankful I am that there are a group of people, and I go all the way back to 20 people in a living room, who were faithful to allow me to put away the tent and simply preach the Word of God full-time. That is... I can't even tell you how blessed I am to be able to do that. And how important I believe it is for the body. And it happens for Paul. He gets this amazing financial gift and it came all the way from the church at Philippi. Think about this. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9. Paul says, When I was present with you there in Corinth and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, that is Silas and Timothy, when they came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. I was able to be full-time in ministry, Paul says, without charging you Corinthians because I was provided for when the brothers came from Macedonia. Now, there's a fuller picture here. Philippians chapter 4, verse 15. Paul writes to the church of Philippi and says, You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. So we know the gift came from Philippi. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. So even before he got to Athens and then on to Corinth, the Philippian church was providing for Paul. Was sending funds to Paul. You got to stop and ask the question. Why would the Philippian church be so generous to Paul's ministry? Well, what made up the Philippian church? Lydia and her household, the jailer and his household, and a number of ex cons. These were people who knew what it meant to be free. And they knew that Paul was the apostle of the heart set free. And they were so blessed by their newfound freedom in Christ Jesus, they gave joyfully. They said, we've got to make sure Paul can keep doing this everywhere he goes. And so they supported Paul's ministry so he could be full-time. Joyfully giving. The church of Philippi was a joyful church. And so Paul was able to say to them, Philippians 4.4, you know the verse, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Man, keep on rejoicing, church of joy. And they were joyful in their giving. And so, please note this, everything that is given, every gift, every offering, every tithe given here, on a Sunday, on a Wednesday, given to the work here of the Lord, is a joyful gift. It's doing things. I can attest to you, by the way, we have a ministry staff that is very conscientious about how they spend money. Very conscientious. We often, around the the staff meeting and around the building during the week, we're often saying, well, okay, remember, this is the tithes and offerings of the fellowship. Is that really what it should go for? Do we really want to spend money in this area or that area? Will this build the kingdom? It's constantly on our minds. And by the way, in terms of tithes and offerings, do you see how I just slipped in talking about money? You didn't even know it was coming. <laughs> not only do your tithes and your offerings fund the work of the ministry here at the bridge, not only does it fund the work of, of missions in various locations around the world, but your tithes and offerings increase your account What do you mean In Philippians 4:17 Paul says not that I seek the gift itself I seek the profit which increases to your account The people who were most blessed by the giving of the Philippian church were not the Corinthians it was the Philippians themselves they were most blessed The giving church is the blessed church. And I'm not talking about quid pro quo. If this church gives, God's going to give more money back into that church. That's not what I mean at all. I'm talking spiritually. The generous church is the blessed church because spiritually we know we're engaged in the work of the kingdom. We're taking one of the most important things in our lives, and don't lie to me, you know it's important, money. It's a stronghold in many lives. And we're taking this stronghold, this bastion of of, of false security, and we're shaking it loose, and we're giving it to the Lord, and we're watching Him work. Not only in the church fellowship, but in our own lives. It increases our account. And as you give to the heavenly work, your account swells. It is the best investment you will ever make in your life tithing giving I've told you before it took me 35 years to learn that lesson that it really is more blessed to give than to receive and that in tithing you see God work in a way you wouldn't even you wouldn't believe he is remarkably faithful I sat and listened to my pastor say this in Southern California. And I just got the willies. (laughs) Because I didn't see how it was possible. How in the world, on our budget. Besides the fact the church is paying me. Why should I give it back to the church? That's just stupid. (laughs) pay myself. You know? It took a long time to realize that giving was an act of faith. And faith is simply trusting God to do what He said He'd do. That is, He said, seek first the kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. So seek first the kingdom. And one of the best places to begin that process is write the very first check out of your paycheck to the Lord. No, I'm not sitting here going, Dig deep, fellowship. We're going to have a special offering today. We don't work that way. You know that. You also know that I have no idea what anybody here gives, except me. I know what I give. I'm fully aware of that. I just don't want you to miss the blessing. And truly, please hear my heart, it is a blessing to invest yourself in the kingdom financially. I'm talking greenbacks. I'm talking money. And Jesus wasn't afraid to do it, nor was Paul. He wasn't afraid to address the great value of being financially vested in the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Jesus said, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where neither thieves break in nor steal. For there, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also." Did you see in the news the pastor's wife who was killed in a home robbery invasion? Pray for him. You know that the Sunday following the murder of his wife, he was in the pulpit preaching. And the way he's able to respond to such a heinous act is this is a man who is vested in the kingdom. What is it that Jesus said? Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. And this pastor's wife was stolen from him. And yet, he knows right where she is. She is home with Jesus. That's how he's able to continue preaching. Put your money where your faith is. Put your money where your heart is. You say, my heart is with the Lord, prove it. Not to me. Again, I won't know if you do or don't give. Prove it to yourself. Prove to yourself that you really trust the Lord. I say, go big or go home. Put your money where your heart is. Put it in the Lord. Put it in the work of the kingdom. And if you don't want to put it here at the bridge, that's fine. Put it somewhere else. Just give it to the Lord. Matthew 6.24, Jesus said very clearly, No one can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You can't do it. But in our gifts, in our tithes, our offerings, we can actively invest in that which lasts for eternity. What is that? People. Out of this world, do you realize the only thing that will continue on into eternity is other people? This building won't. Your property won't. Your cars, our homes, our bank accounts, our clothes, even my Seahawks shirt, will not continue on into eternity. People will. And our accounts... Increase or decrease based on the fruit of our investments. And what is the fruit? People. Lives saved by Jesus. Now, here's where fear and terror become toothless and irrelevant to the church. Verse 6. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out out his garments. Okay, this is now back in Corinth and the Jews are resisting Paul now. That's a big surprise. And they're blaspheming And he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Shaking out his garments, it was a biblical way to say, I'm not going to carry this burden. I'm not going to wear your rejection. And by the way, that's a good word, uh, followers of Jesus. When you share Christ with someone and they vehemently reject you, they cut you off, say, I don't want to have this conversation with you. Shake it off. Thank you, Taylor Swift. Because you know, haters gonna hate, 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 hate. Right, Brian? You shake out your robes. The whole idea of the shaking the dust off the feet—it's not like you know, giving someone a bad sign. By the way, I can't believe this. Do you know that uh, on the little emojis on your iPhones, that now one of the emojis is the finger? I don't want that. I mean, I saw that, and I almost threw my iPhone away, and then I got a call, so I, you know, I had to take it. But <laughs> I hate this world. And the things that keep coming up in this world keep happening. It's, anyway, I, I, was, I wasn't even—I don't know where that came from. Just frustration, I guess. Uh-huh. Emojis. Sh- oh, shake it off. So, so, <laughs> shake it off. Let it go, man. Someone gets upset with you because you preach Jesus to them. What are you doing? Think about this. What are you doing when you share Jesus with someone? Is this a bad thing? Listen, I'd like to offer you an opportunity for eternal life. How is that bad? I'd like to offer you freedom from guilt and shame and sin. I'd like to offer you love and affection and support in a body of believers, people who will be with you through the hard times. How is that a bad thing? Redemption, sanctification, the glory of God. How are these things not marvelous, wonderful? In fact, I believe it's called good news. And yet people recoil at it because they are captives of the enemy. People shun it. This wonderful, blessed thing. This is not ISIS saying, believer, we're going to cut off your heads. That's a bad thing. This is Jesus with open arms saying, I love you. I want to be with you. I want to save you. Good news. Well, Paul had to shake it off because he wasn't going to wear that rejection. It wasn't his rejection. It was God's. The people were rejecting Jesus, not Paul. So from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He's talking about there in Corinth. And he literally did. Verse 7, he left there, went to the house of a man called Tideus Justice. A very clean man. Tideus. A worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. And Christus, leader of the synagogue, who didn't put too much milk on his cereal, Christus... Believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. This is awesome. This is exciting. The work is moving forward. The Jews in Corinth rejected it. Paul's gone to the Gentiles and it's starting to just spread out. And now the leader of the synagogue believes. And by the way, he'll be kicked out for it. Or at least will step down. Because very quickly we're going to see there's another synagogue leader who's taken his place. But watch this, verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer. But go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the Word of God among them. Number four in your notes, the presence of the body. Talking about bodybuilding here. The presence of the body. Jesus says, wait, how do you know it's Jesus, right? Because it doesn't say Jesus. You know what? Listen to what he says. Do not be afraid. That's a phrase Jesus utters quite a bit. But also know what he says, for I am what? With you. What did he say in the Great Commission? Go. Make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he says, lo, I am with you. Always. I am with you, he says. He's reminding Paul of this glorious truth. I am with you. No man will attack you in order to harm you. For, and I love this, I have many people in this city. The presence of the body. The writer of the book of Hebrews, I believe it was Paul. Chapter 12, verse 1. Said, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. It is always easier to run a race when your team surrounds you, when your people are cheering you on. That great cloud of witnesses. Hebrews 12 talks about the great cloud of witnesses. I have always thought of it in terms of the saints who have gone on before us because Hebrews 11 is all about those saints, right? People of faith. The hall of the faithful. Name after name after name. A faithful follower of the Lord who gave their lives for the Lord, who followed after the Lord. And then in chapter 12, He says, hey, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses encouraging us, cheering us on. May I suggest to you this morning that the great cloud of witnesses also includes those saints who are sitting in your row. Who are right here. And that's something else I think about often. I am surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. When I get discouraged, I think about you. Oh, come on, Reed. no, I really I do. I think, look at all the people who believe in Jesus, who are trusting in Him, who are following after Him, and it encourages me. It's like Silas and Timothy showing up, but there's not just Silas and Timothy. There's a whole bunch of people in the city that Jesus reminds Paul. The presence of the body, man, builds you up. Then I need to be reminded of that often. How great a cloud of witnesses we have on earth as well as in heaven. The body of Christ. I am not alone. You are not alone in this walk of faith. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I need to remember you all with affection. And not only you, but our fellow workers in the world. In Oak Harbor and in Anacortes, guess what? Jesus could say to us, I have many people in these cities. And it's not just you, Bridge Fellowship. I have many people in these cities. People at work. People for the kingdom. People who are doing my will. We are surrounded, gang, by a great cloud of witnesses. Our fellow workers. So don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged like Paul was. By the way, note that. Paul was afraid. Paul was afraid. Look at verse 9 again. Jesus says, do not be afraid any longer. You might say, well, yeah, but any longer is italicized, so the translators just added that. There's a reason they added that. The word afraid here is mephobeto from where we get phobia, where phobetron, terrors, the striking of fear comes from. Me phobu, he says. It's, It's in the imperative present middle form. Doesn't that just clear it all up for you? It's imperative because Jesus is commanding it. Stop being afraid. It's a command. But it's also in the present middle, meaning that the fear that Jesus is talking about here is immediate and it is something that the subject, Paul, is bringing on himself. Don't be afraid any longer. You're afraid, Paul. I get it. I see this in you. And you're bringing it on yourself and you're piling up the fears and you're worried and you're trembling. In fact, didn't Paul say that? 1 Corinthians 2.3 I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. So how does Jesus answer that kind of fear? With presence, Not like Christmas presents. With His presence. With the presence of the body. His presence. He says in verse 10, I am with you. I mean, is there anything greater a follower of Jesus needs to know? I'm with you, He says. You're not by yourself in this. I have made my home in your heart, Jesus says. John 14, 15, and 16. Read all three chapters. I'm with you. Colossians chapter 1 verse 27 Paul says God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you the hope of glory I'm with you he says presence but it's not just his presence it's also the presence of his body in flesh and in blood that will remove terror from a heart the presence of the body And the presence of the head who is Jesus Christ. And verse 11 tells us Paul got it. He understood it. He settled there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. He settled down in Corinth and stayed there longer than he had any previous churches. He spent more time in Corinth, a year and a half. He just stayed there. Typically, Paul was far more itinerant. Remember Thessalonica? Three weeks. They got three weeks. And two amazing letters. Corinth got Paul living there for a year and a half because God said don't fear. Settle in. Preach the Word. Stick it out. He is there in the presence of many. You are not alone in this faith. I am not alone. Call upon the Lord. You can do that anywhere, at any time, in any circumstance. Call upon the Lord. And you know what? If you need flesh and blood, call upon the body. A fellow believer. Someone you know. Someone you trust who knows the Lord. Pray together. Gather together. At any time you can find rest for your soul in Jesus and in His people. We are right here. We are still here. So take comfort in that. And the Corinthian bodybuilding continues, number five is the last one, with the proliferation of the saints. It just keeps on increasing. Paul, Silas, Timothy, Aquila, Prisca. And the numbers keep growing, but not without, and you might jot this down as just little number six, the persecution of the body, but we don't have to worry about that one. There's a little persecution going on. Verse 12, watch this. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat. Saying, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Well, Jesus, you said no harm would befall me, Paul might be thinking, as he's thrown before the judgment seat, verse 14. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrong or of a vicious crime, oh Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I'm unwilling to be a judge in these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. See, Paul, nothing's going to happen to you here. Don't worry about it. You'll be fine. In verse 17, and they all, and they all we understand is the Jewish people. This is a hard verse to translate in the Greek. But most conservative scholars understand they all is referring to the Jewish people, not to the uh, proconsul or not to the Romans there. They all took hold of Sosthenes. Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue. It's no longer Crispus. Now it's Sosthenes. And they began beating him in front of the judgment seat. <laughs> but Galileo was not concerned about any of these things. Poor Sosthenes. Talk about being in the wrong place at the wrong time. He replaces Crispus as the synagogue leader in Corinth. Crispus again probably stepped down because of his newfound faith in Christ. His expanded faith, I should say, in Jesus as Messiah. But here, the Jews are so angry, they're so incensed, they take it out on one of their own for not getting the justice they seek. You're going to let him do this? And man, they start beating on Sosthenes. Poor guy. And Galileo's just sitting there watching. Yeah, that's what you religious hotheads do. Why is this story here? I mean, as Jesus promised, Paul is protected, so we have an example of that. But, but really, it seems kind of out of place. All of a sudden, we're talking about building up the body. We're talking about Jesus saying not, be, not to be afraid. All this good stuff is happening. And then we get this weird little story about poor Sosthenes being beaten up. a synagogue leader. couple of reasons I think the story is inserted here. The Spirit wanted us to hear it. Number one, it's historical. I mean, it really happened. But it's also positional. It gives us the exact dating or at least a close dating of when Paul was in Corinth. We know now, 52 AD. Because at that time, the Leo was proconsul of Corinth. History tells us that. So now we can date Acts chapter 18. It is 52, at least early 50s. But all evidence points to around 52 A.D. And so it's positional. It gives us place for where we're at in our study through Acts. Well, that's wonderful, but there's another reason this story is here. And I'll tell you in just a second, verse 18, quickly. Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and he put out for Syria. And with him now, note this, are Priscilla and Aquila. In Korea, he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. Now, quickly, side note, Bible students. This was probably a short-term vow. It was a Nazarite vow. If you've gone through the study of the word, you know a Nazarite vow. It's talked about in Numbers chapter 6. Three things that were required when someone took, when a Jew took a Nazarite vow. No drinking, no haircuts, and no episodes of The Walking Dead. You couldn't have contact with dead things. Okay, so no zombies. They were right out. No drinking, no haircuts, no contact with dead things, and apparently a vow had been taken, and the jury is out as to whether it was Paul's vow or Aquila's vow. It would make more sense if it was Aquila's vow, and, and we just talked about Aquila. With him were Priscilla and Aquila, and in syncria he had his haircut, Aquila for he was keeping a vow. Aquila, having come right out of Judaism, probably had made that vow before uh, Paul converted him. And so now he had kept his vow, hadn't cut his hair, and now he's going to cut his hair because the time of the vow is over. There are other people who say, well, Paul took the vow. How much time? Okay, I'll tell you this because whatever. <laughs> we got time, right? We got all the money. Paul may have taken a vow, although people say, well, why would Paul take a vow? He has pretty much disavowed the requirements of the law. Right? He is under grace. He fought for the Gentiles not to have to be circumcised. Why would Paul now take a vow and and, then his, and now cut his hair to end the vow? Well, Paul, though he was not under the law, abided by the law so that he might reach the Jewish people. To the Jews, he became as a Jew. All things to all people, so that he might win some for Jesus Christ. And from here, he's about to go up to Jerusalem, so he's fulfilling this vow. So it may be Paul. I think probably Aquila. It doesn't really matter. Let's move on. Point was the vow was kept. It was kept. Faithfulness. Faithfulness matters. Verse nineteen. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Funny, he said he wasn't going to go to the Jews anymore. He's going to go to the Gentiles. Paul can't help himself. He loves the Jewish people. So should we. He went into the synagogue, reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay there for a longer time, he did not consent. But taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. Now he will come back to Ephesus. But we're told in verse 22, when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. And that's confusing language there. Because Caesarea Maritima, this is where he puts in, is to the far south of Antioch. Which is up to the north. And normally if you're speaking in map language, you would go down to the church at Caesarea and up to the church at Antioch. But here it says, he went up to the church after landing at Caesarea, went up to the church, greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. Which tells us where the church was. Jerusalem. The church he went to was in Jerusalem. He came into Caesarea... He went up to Jerusalem, because you always go up to Jerusalem, met the brothers, that would be Peter and the guys there, and then from there went down, because you always go down from Jerusalem in any direction, you go down to the rest of the world, and he went down to Antioch in the north. Make sense? So that's the up-down situation there. Now, verse 23 begins Paul's third missionary journey. And we'll get into that in, in uh, probably Wednesday night. We'll get on to the third journey. But remember that he has just left now Prisca and Aquila at Ephesus. He left them at Ephesus. Now watch this. Verse 23. After having spent some time there, he left and passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia. So he goes up to Antioch and around back into Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the disciples. Now, A Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus. Prisca and Aquila are in Ephesus. And he was mighty in the Scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted, we might add, however, only with the baptism of John, which was a baptism of preparation, it was not a baptism of repentance unto salvation, no, it was a baptism of preparation. But he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. The disciples are now discipling. They are now the disciplers. See how it works? Bodybuilding. Verse 27, and he wanted to go across to Achaia, and the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him, and when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who have believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ, the proliferation of the saints. Paul gathers Aquila and Priscilla. Now Aquila and Priscilla meet up with this Apollos who is speaking of Messiah. He's in the synagogues. He's talking about Jesus. He just needs the part two. He needs the further understanding. He gets it. And now he, as a powerful teacher of the world, of the word, goes on. The disciples are once, the, the disciples are now the disciples. Aquila and Priscilla are now the teachers. And Apollos is the student. And Apollos would become a formidable teacher of the Word in the early church. Powerful teacher of the Word. To the degree degree that, that some people believe he wrote the book of Hebrews. I don't, but some do. They think he wrote Hebrews. But we also know that he was such a strong teacher of the Word that when he came to Corinth, people began to immaturely take sides. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 1.12. Each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas and I'm of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul's not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. And we know Crispus' baptism was quick because he was still Crispus when he came out of the water. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 3 verse 4 says, When one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not mere men? What is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed. Even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one, I planted, Apollos watered, but God is causing the growth. And that's the thing to note this morning, body of Christ, God causes the growth. That the body is building. That Jesus has many people yet in this city. Are you one of them? Are you one of the people of Christ? Are you taking the Gospel into the workplace? Are you building up the body by the simple decisions you make in your life? Hey, you may never travel to a foreign land. You may may, may never stand up on a platform and, and preach a sermon. But in the decisions you make for Jesus on a daily basis, you build the body. You grow the kingdom. Jesus has many people in this city. Now going through Acts 18, I I love the chapter. And there's more here to go back and consider and think through. You can do that on your own. But the primary thing I saw was the relationships. Relationships formed and fostered. And this is how it works. This is how the body gets built up. Aquila and Priscilla. Tidiest justice in his clean house. Crispus and his household. We see the loving gift of the church at Philippi blessing Paul's efforts at Corinth. And now we even see Apollos. But wait, there's one more. There's one more. One more named disciple of Jesus in this chapter. A follower who's called Sosthenes wait Sosthenes he, he's the synagogue leader right who got beat up in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 1 it reads Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes our brother so he got beaten up but he ended up freed up and even built up saved, discipled and traveling now with Paul that's how it works That's how the body grows. Through preparation, propping up, provision, presence. There is now a proliferation of the church. And I'm so encouraged. This was the chapter I needed to read this week. When the bombs went off and the bullets started flying, I needed to be reminded that the body is still building. That Christ is still at work in this world. That Jesus' people weather every age, every threat, every terror, and just keep on growing. Because of Jesus. That really caps for me the whole entire chapter. Because of Jesus. You see, verse 5, Paul preached Jesus was the Christ. Verse 10, Jesus tells Paul, I am with you. Verse 25, Apollos taught about Jesus and now at the end of the chapter in verse 28, Apollos demonstrates by the Scriptures Jesus is the Christ. So the whole point is this. You are Christ's body and individually members of it. So be of good cheer. Body of Christ, Jesus is building us up. Lord, we align ourselves with You today. And we pray, Lord Jesus, build Your church. Build Your church, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen.